Um, I'd love you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, page 1154. And it is our great privilege to work our way through books of the Bible, to work out and to understand what God is saying to us as we study his word. And we've got to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13. Now, um, we're going to pray, we're going to ask God to help us, um, and then we're going to examine and, and hear from this passage together and allow God to speak to us by his spirit. But let's pray that God would help us. Father, we've been singing lots about your great love in sending Jesus, and Father, we ask that now we would have hearts that are ready to listen. Oh, Father, please, by your spirit, would you teach us, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Last week, we left on quite a cliffhanger. Uh, The last verse that we finished with last week was verse 31 of 1 uh, Corinthians 12. Just look at that with me. Where Paul says, now, eagerly desire the greater gifts. What a verse. And I said to you last week that that obviously raises the question, which ones? Which are the greater gifts? Come on, Paul, because I want to know the greater gifts, because then I can be even more spiritual. I can be even more impressive. Come on, Paul, which are the greater gifts? We're so excited. We're up for this. We want to know what the greater gifts are. And we're ready, and and he's going to start talking about tongues and prophecy and all this stuff, and we're ready for it, Paul. And then he doesn't talk about it. He has a whole chapter before he comes back to the answer to the greater gifts which is in chapter 14, verse 1. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. So we are getting to it, but you're going to have to wait. And here's, I think, something which is just a little bit of an indication that we're quite Corinthian in our thinking. I want to know about the gifts. But we've got to do this chapter about love. It's just sort of in the way. And I guarantee you this, if on the Globe Church website there is the sermons go up as they do every week, and one is called Love, and one is called Prophecy in Tongues, I think I know which one will get the bigger hit. Because we're fascinated by the gift. We want to know about the gift. We want to know about that stuff. But Paul has something for us to hear today. So look how he starts. Yet I will show you the most excellent way. And what Paul is going to show us this afternoon is that we need to be less obsessed with the gifts and more obsessed with the way of love. So let me read this passage. And it is a staggeringly beautiful passage. Um, Let me read it um, for us. We're just going to go to verse 7 this week, then Phil's going to take the second half of the passage next week. But let me read this um, as we go. Yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge... And if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, 
I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. What a passage. Here is the most excellent way. And I have such a burden on my heart this afternoon to say to us as a church, can we get hold of this together? Holy Spirit, would you teach us this afternoon this most excellent way? That actually we'd learn that the things that we do don't matter nearly as much as the way that we do them. The way of love. That's what Paul's going to show us. If someone invited you around for Sunday lunch and you thought, oh, that's really nice, thank you. And you, you, you went hungry because that's what you do and it's, you know, you were expectant. And they put in front of you a bowl of broccoli. Well, how would you feel? Okay, now contrast that to someone else invites you the next week and they put in front of you a huge roast dinner. You feel different about those, right? There's a verse in the Bible which is very interesting. In the book of Proverbs, it says this. Better a dish of vegetables with love than a fattened calf with hatred. And right the way through the Bible, the big message is it doesn't matter if it's broccoli or roast dinner. The only thing that matters is love. Love is what counts. Love is the thing that matters. And this is really exciting for us as a church. Because last week we were talking about, you know, some people in the body feel a bit useless. You may feel like, well, all I've got to offer is a bit of broccoli. And to be honest, it's gone a bit withered and dry. It's not even nice broccoli. And that's all I've got to offer I've just got some broccoli. And you look at other people and they just seem to be able to offer everything. They can offer a great big roast dinner of gifts. Tongues, yep. Gravy, yep. (laughs) Sorry, mixing metaphors badly there. Okay, that was unhelpful. But here's the difference, right? And you feel like all I've got is broccoli, they've got roast dinner. Here's the thing, doesn't matter. Because if you are able to act in the way of love, if you are able to use your broccoli in an act of love, (laughs) that is beautiful to God and it is no less beautiful than the roast dinner. 
And in fact, the roast dinner can be the most horrendous, horrible, ugly thing if there is no love. And therefore, this afternoon, it's so important for us to understand it's not about what you do, it's the way you do it. If you went to the Corinthian church, they'd run around saying, look what we're doing, look what we're doing. Look at all the stuff that we're doing. Look at our roast dinner. And Paul would say, yeah, but look at the way you're doing it. Look at the way you're doing it. Now, in some contexts, it doesn't really matter how someone gets something done, right? There are some places, in, in some situations, I don't care. I don't care why you're doing this or how, just get it done. You know, the lawn needs mowing. I don't care. Just get it done. Someone get it done. That isn't true in church. This is the most excellent way. And it's important for us to understand because there are other ways of doing things, yes? There are other reasons for doing things, other ways that we might walk in the most, not in the most excellent way, but in a least excellent, less excellent way. You can walk in the way of ambition. You do your stuff, you do your thing, you use your gifts in order to build yourself up, in order to get ahead, in order to get a career, in order to just be one of those ones in the church having a, oh, look at that. There's Jimmy, and isn't Jimmy so spiritual? Look at him, he's so gifted. And every time you hear that, it's like, yes, roast dinner. And all the broccoli people over here are just feeling rubbish because they know their broccoli's not going to get them anywhere in the church. They're going to wave their broccoli, and everyone's going to go, hmm, nice, thanks, but Jimmy's really gifted. So Jimmy gets all the attention, and little broccoli person over here with their floppy bit of broccoli gets nothing because they're just not impressive enough. That's ambition, the way of ambition. Or perhaps it's not ambition, it's just duty. You do stuff, but the reason you're doing it is the way of duty. I'm doing this because I have to. It's just what I did. I signed up to a rotor like six months ago, and I got an email from Church Suite that says it's me. (sighs) Okay, I'll be there. So here I am, I come, I do my thing. And it's duty that drives me. It's not joy, there's there's no joy in it. You do as much as you have to, but you certainly don't do more than you have to. I'll do my thing. There's a most excellent way. It's the way of love. And now just look how Paul nails this. And he's so strong here. You've got to understand, for, for the Corinthians reading this, this is shocking what he says in verses 1 to 4, 3. Look at them. Look at verse 1. He gives three examples, really. Um, maybe even four, of this loveless action. And look what he picks on, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Speaking in tongues, we're going to think more about that in a couple of weeks, but it's the ability to speak in other languages, either human languages or perhaps angelic languages. It's the ability to speak in a language you haven't learned that you're just able to speak. And the Corinthians loved this stuff. They were big into that. It was like, whoa, look. Look at Jimmy go. He's doing all this stuff. It's so weird. It's so cool. And Paul says, I'm not interested in what you're doing. I'm interested in the way you're doing it. And without love, it's just an empty noise. It is a 
resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. What an image that is. If you're not quite sure why Paul picks that language, let me make a suggestion to you. Find a small child, maybe four, four-year-old, and give them a symbol. And for the first five seconds, you think, oh, that's cute. Look, they're banging the cymbal. Isn't that lovely? And then, ah, because it's just noise, right? And that noise, it's just noise pollution. There's nothing beautiful about it. It's just horrendous noise. Now, I know that there are some cymbal players who are very gifted, and if you're a professional cymbal player, then I value you, I appreciate you, I honour you, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about bad cymbal players. People who smack a cymbal and it just reverberates in your head, and you find yourself shaking. When people speak in tongues, it is noise pollution in God's ears if there's no love. It makes God shudder. If there's no love. <laughs> Here's Jimmy. Perhaps he's just finished speaking in tongues. Everyone's gone, well done, Jimmy. That's very, very good. Right, let's have a reading from 1 Corinthians. If you speak, do you not see how, how this would be shocking to them? What about verse 2? If I have the gift of prophecy, oh, they like that too. Those who speak in an amazing way and they can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. Oh yes, there's Jimmy. He's very wise. I don't know why Jimmy got picked on today. But Jimmy's very wise. Jimmy always knows the right thing to say. Jimmy's so wise. He's such an incredible man. Paul says, I'm not interested in what you're doing. I'm interested in the way you're doing it. I don't, care how cl- I don't care how clever your arguments are. I don't care how many PhDs you've got in theology. I don't care how great a books you've written. If you don't love people, then you don't know anything. You know nothing. We've got to hear this. Sometimes we can be so fascinated with knowledge, we just want to know more, know more, know more. We want to be impressive. And in Bible study, we want to be able to the one who says, oh yes, in Zechariah 7, verse 3, there's a reference to this. And the reason you say that is not because you love your group and not because you say because it will build up you. And if there's no love, it is nothing. Or faith that can move a mountain. The sort of faith that does extraordinary things. Even that. And you notice it's not just that The thing is nothing, but look, I am nothing if I do not have love. And the danger of this is that we kid ourselves. We kid ourselves with someone special, with our tongue speaking and our wisdom and our cleverness and our theology and our dotting the right I's and T's and whatever you do to them and all this stuff and you spurt it out and all the time you're nothing. God says, but you're nothing because there's no love. And the only thing I'm looking for is whether you love. That's it. And then one more example. Verse 3. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. If I give everything to the poor. You say, well, why on earth would you do that? Well, actually there is something in us that can do that for the wrong 
reasons. We can do it in the wrong way so that we may boast to draw attention to ourselves. Look at my great act. Look at my great act of sacrifice. And we'll go, wow, Jimmy's so sacrificial. He's so spiritual. And actually, all the time, Jimmy wants us to know. He wants us to know that he's given everything. Paul says it's nothing. Now, this is so important for us to feel the weight of this. Because I think most of us, we want to be authentic as Christians. And we're not quite sure how to do it. Well, this is how to do it. You've got to love. And I wonder sometimes whether we think authenticity in, in the kind of spiritual realm is getting into some spiritual zone and then it'll be authentic. So in, you know, in a church service, maybe we um, close our eyes. It's not about everyone else. It's just about me and God. It's just about me and God. I, I just want to worship God. It's just about me and God. No, it's not. It cannot be. If you sing worship songs with passion and joy to God, but you don't love everyone, And this is where this challenge of the community of who we are, the body of Christ, this is who we are. We cannot do it on our own. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we should never close our eyes when we're singing, I'm not saying that, but I am saying we should open them sometimes. And I'm saying we should look at one another. And we should sing to one another and we should help each other and we should be caught up as we're worshipping God and saying, actually, Lord, please would you help the people around me to know this. And please would you help Jimmy because he's had a really tough week because he's been picked on by the pastor all week. Do you see that there is a place for our own individual relationship with God, but it's not here. Not here. This is where we do it together. This is where we love. So Paul's really gone for him. And then Paul turns to this extraordinary paragraph about love. And this is the sort of thing where I don't really know quite what to do with this. Because as far as I can see, anything I'm going to say is going to spoil it. It's a bit like when you see a beautiful sunset and you stand with someone and it's a beautiful sunset and they start saying things like, ah, now look, I wonder why this is, uh, oh look, the particles there are rising like that. And you're like, just shut up, just enjoy it. Why do you have to spoil it? Why do you have to talk? And there's a part of me that thinks we should just enjoy this. It is, love is patient. It's kind. There is nothing... This is one of the most sublime passages of human literature ever written. But I'm going to say some stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And my aim in saying this stuff is to help us not simply just to read it, but to really understand and feel it. And then we are going to enjoy it together as we celebrate communion. But I want you to see that Paul does not define love. This is not a definition. It is a description. Paul doesn't say, oh, let me tell you what love is. He says, this is what love does. It is a description of what abstract thing that you sit out there, that you write a philosophy essay about and go, oh, let me write about this abstract thing called love over there. No, love is a thing that does. Therefore, you see love and you, do, you understand love not by defining it, by, des- by describing it. 
And, it, and it's beautiful. Let me just read it through again and listen to it. Love is patient. That's what it does. It's patient. It's kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And there's a sense in which we could read this, and it's like we're going, wow, wow. But I'm not sure that's the reaction the original readers would have had. I wonder if rather than saying ooh and ah, as they read this, they'd have said, ouch. Because they would have recognized that what Paul was doing was saying, here is love and it is everything that you Corinthians are not. So hear it like this, love is patient, but you're not. Love is kind, but you're not. Love does not envy, but you do. It does not boast, but you do. It's not proud, but you are. Do you see? It has that, the beauty of love actually makes us go, wow, and then makes us go, ow, as we see the reality of our own hearts. And so I've grouped these things together, and it's difficult to group them together because in some ways Paul is just kind of spur, he's just like, but I've grouped them together, I've grouped them under four questions which help us fill the ouch a little bit of what Paul is saying. Here's the first one. Um, are we harsh? Oops. Are we harsh? Love is patient and kind. Take those two together. I wonder how harsh are we in the way we treat one another. Have you ever tried to teach someone to play piano? Yes, some of us have, a few. Tests patience. You know that you can do it better than them. That's why you're teaching. And it's very easy to sigh and to tut and to roll your eyes. And with every shake of the head, here's the thing, right? With every shake of your head as you teach the piano, you see their shoulders droop a little bit lower as they know that they're letting you down. And with every disappointed sigh, you give them the message, you're failing. How do you react when someone disappoints you? When someone lets you down, when someone doesn't do something that they say they're going to do, they promise to do something they forget, or they have a go at something but they just get it wrong, they don't do it very well, or they say the wrong thing at the wrong time, or they're insensitive, they say something to you that kind of, it's just they say it badly. How do you react when people disappoint you? Because love is patient and kind. That's how love reacts. And I think that we can be pretty harsh and unkind towards one another. When I get frustrated with people, it's because they're not meeting my expectations. They're not doing what I want. They're not helping me to achieve the ambitions that I have, so I get impatient. I think I have a pretty low threshold for failure. (laughs) Criticism, grumbling, moaning, gossiping, all of that stuff. 
Can I tell you, that this week preparing this, I had to apologize to someone because, of, you know, this challenges me. This makes me feel like, I had to go and say sorry to someone this week because I was like, I got this wrong. And we've got, we cannot allow a church, right, okay, listen, please, can I, can I talk to us as a church family, okay? We cannot allow a culture to grow within our church family that is unkind, that is harsh or cruel, where everything has to be perfect. Can I tell you what will happen? This is what will happen. If we have a church culture where everything has to be perfect and where you always have to be right, no one will say it'll do anything. I remember being in a meeting not actually very long ago and I got something wrong, theologically wrong, in a fairly major way. And people, I did not speak again. Because that's what we do, isn't it? And if we are a culture within our church, that means you've got to get everything right. We'll be a church where actually you just keep your mouth shut. But imagine a church family now where it's okay to get things wrong. Imagine it's okay to have a go and to fail. Imagine it's okay to say something that's not quite theologically true, but it's okay because you had a go. And we rally round and we love and we embrace and we say, great. Imagine a church family like that. Imagine the untapped potential that is sitting in this room right now that will not be unleashed unless we're allowed to make mistakes. And our type of churches are churches where we're so afraid of getting it wrong, we're so afraid of being theologically slightly out, that no one says anything. And only the professionals are allowed to speak. And only the special ones. And only Jimmy's allowed to speak because Jimmy knows everything. And I want to say to you that perfectionism and professionalism will elevate a few and will silence the many. It will drive us to play it safe and it will stifle risk-taking. And I would rather we were a church that had a go and when we got it wrong, we said love is patient and kind. Not harsh and cruel. So please... When someone makes a mistake, can we not laugh? Can we not make it? Yeah, I know there's a place. I know there's a place for banter. And it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is a bit of fun. But it's not. Most of the time it's not. Because actually what happens is that person will not speak again. I've seen it over and over again. Just watch them. They're crushed. Their shoulders droop and they will not speak again. Whereas a kind word, a kind word sets, gives them the liberty to speak. Love is patient and kind. It'll be the sort of place where we honour those who have a go, where we encourage people to spread their wings and fly. Love is patient and kind. Are we harsh? Have a look at the next few things in Paul's list. Are we pushy? Love does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. Here are th- these three things about how people treat me. I want to be noticed. I want, to be impre- I want people to be impressed. I hate to be ignored. I, I push myself forward. So we see our gifts not as a way to serve others. We see our gifts as a way to promote ourselves. Can I tell you, envy and love are mutually exclusive. You can't envy someone and love them at the same time. You can't. Because if you're envious of them, 
then actually you want to do them harm. Not good. But if love is in the driving seat of our church, if we're walking in the way of love, then we'll lose our obsession with ourselves. We'll lose our obsession with people noticing me. And instead, we'll push others forward. I want us to be a pushy church, but not a pushy church who pushes ourselves, but who push one another. I mean, not literally. That would be fun. But not to be pushing people. So when somebody say, hey, why don't you ask someone else to have a go? Why don't you ask them? And you might get overlooked because they might be better than you. And then, but you say, I don't mind because love is not self-seeking. It doesn't envy, it's not proud. I think that this will challenge, oh, surely it challenges all of us. Are we pushy? Do we push ourselves forward? What about the third one? Are we simmering? Are we simmering? Have a look at the next uh, little chunk of them. Love does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. If the last ones are about how you treat me, I want to be impressive. These three are about how I treat others. These three are about how I treat those who wrong me. Okay, let me take to a, a, a tube station. Let's go to a tube station in rush hour. Let's go to Victor, Victoria Platform in rush hour. You can't even get in because the, you have to be kept at the top and then they let a few down when the platform's cleared. And you know, you're all pushing forward like this. And you can feel it rising, just the rage of that person who's just in front of you. And then the, and then the doors open and everybody's trying to push in and everybody's trying to come out and you just crash into each other and tempers flare. And even the most mild-mannered of us, even someone as mild-mannered as me sometimes, finds myself going... <laughs> something like that. How dare you? You're stepping on my toes. How dare you get in front of me? And it simmers and it simmers away inside us. People getting in my way. I know where I'm trying to get to and then someone comes along and they get in my way. And you're sure there's more space and that selfish person, just move down. Move down. I can't move down. I'm really sat on her lap. Just move. And then you're all kind of, you know, and you're all squished in and you... You do that thing with your shoulder where you just, am I going to make it? Am I going to make it? <laughs> ah, no! <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but this is what happens in church. We're not quite as round as that yet. <laughs> That'd be terrific, wouldn't it? Getting in, doesn't matter. Uh, we, this is what happens in church. That we simmer because someone else gets in our way. They step on our toes. Someone else does the flowers. And we're like, it was my turn to done the flowers. We don't even have flowers. Someone does the flowers. Flowers would be nice. Someone does the flowers. And they weren't even on the rotor. And it's like, how dare they? They've done the flowers. It's my turn to do the flowers. But we don't say anything. It just kind of is inside us. And we begin to gossip about them. We dishonor them. We're rude about them. It's there. And at some point, it all just... And pours out. Suddenly it explodes. I wonder this afternoon, 
Are we the sort of church that has simmering, simmering grudges against one another? I think this is really easy to do. We've got our little notebook, and then we've got our little list of wrongs. We don't get out often, but you know, every time someone does something wrong, we just make a little note. Okay, got that. And we keep a record. We remember. Love keeps no record of wrongs. There's no record. It's just wiped clean. It's all gone. This is what love does. You see, love is a description. It doesn't record wrongs. It doesn't delight in evil. It doesn't love it when something bad happens to someone else. It rejoices in truth. When there's something wrong, you go tell someone. Speak truth. It rejoices in truth. You know what, Jimmy? You really upset me with the way you did my flowers this week. I'm really sorry. I didn't realize. That's okay. We can... It rejoices in truth, in openness, not in simmering resentment. And one more. Are we cynical? Have a look at the last four. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love always protects. I love that. It always protects. Our natural instinct is to protect ourselves. And that is when we become cynical. You see, what happens is, I'm worried about that person, they may hurt me, so I'm going to become cynical about them, I'm going to become suspicious of them, I'm going to distrust them in order that I can protect myself. I don't want to get too close, I don't want to get hurt. But love doesn't do that, love protects them. Love always trusts. It looks for what is good, it looks for the good, it looks for the... The diamond in the rough, to quote <laughs> Aladdin. <laughs> it looks for the good in someone. We're so quick to spot what's bad. We're so quick to see the faults. You did this, 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 and this wrong. And all the time, love is saying, yeah, but they did this one thing right. Why can't you see it? Why can't you see what they did? It protects. It hopes. There's something so hopeful about love. We don't write people off. We don't say, oh, there's no hope for them. It says, no, we're going to go again. I know you've failed. I know you're struggling, but I still believe that Jesus can save you. I still believe. I still have hope. Love always hopes. And therefore, it always perseveres. I think we've become so cynical well, that never change. What's the point? What's the point of keep talking to them about Jesus? Might as well just give up. No, love always perseveres. There's always hope. I wonder who is it that we're in danger, perhaps, of becoming cynical about in order to protect ourselves so that we don't get hurt. We don't we get hurt. So we become cynical. Mr. Darcy in Pride and Prejudice famously said, my good opinion once lost is lost forever. My good opinion once lost is lost forever. That's what Darcy said. Darcy knew nothing of 1 Corinthians 13, love. Your good opinion once lost should be regained very, very quickly because love always hopes, always trusts, always protects, and always perseveres. And you look for the good. You pursue what is good in someone. 
and rejoice in that. Now, I don't know about you, but by this point I'm thinking, this most excellent way sounds most impossible way. It's too hard. I can't do that. Well, let me point you finally to where the hope lies. Because of all of this, all of this is a description, right? It's a description not just of love, it's a description of a man. You see, actually our hope rests in the most excellent man. There is only one who's lived this. And as we finish, I want you to know that everything that 1 Corinthians 13 says about, Jesus, uh, says about love is the way Jesus treats you. So I'm going to invite you to close your eyes for a second. And I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 13. And I'm going to read it for you, telling you how Jesus feels about you as you trust in him. Okay, so I invite you to close your eyes. You don't have to close your eyes. I just thought it might help you to concentrate. But listen now to the way that Jesus treats you. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. He does not dishonor you. He's not self-seeking. He's not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but he rejoices with the truth. He always protects. He always trusts. He always hopes. He always perseveres. And when Jesus went to a cross to die, he was protecting you. His love protects you. He placed himself in the way of the righteous anger of God that we deserve. And he took the punishment for us to protect us. And because he's protected us, our record of wrongs has been wiped clean. So as we read this, many of us might be left thinking, I can't possibly do this. And you're right but Jesus is the one who can change you. So this afternoon, we need to repent. That is, we need to say sorry where we've been harsh, where we've been pushy, where we've been simmering, where we've been, whatever the third one, cynical. (laughs) We need to repent of that. We need to ask Jesus to change us. Why don't we pray together and speak to him now? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that Jesus is this perfect love displayed for us. And Father, we ask that we might find him to be the one who carries us, to be the one who sets us on this most excellent way, the one who gives us the power to walk this way. Lord Jesus, we're your church, we're your body. We beg of you by your Holy Spirit's power that you would make us this sort of church where we would treat one another not harshly but kindly. Father, please teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.